Welcome to Who Needs School with your host, Joe Vollert, where I'm gathering conversations with teachers, administrators, students, business leaders, and innovators about something we all do, school. Our guest today is Jim Bopp, the head of school for nationally recognized Creighton Prep, Omaha, Nebraska's Jesuit High School. Jim made a name for himself as an assistant principal at Brophy College Prep in Phoenix, where he founded and ran their innovation commons, state-of-the-art makerspace. Today, we discussed the shift from information to innovation, what inspired him in this work, and what he sees as the pillars of secondary education today. Okay, Jim Bopp, head of school at Creighton Prep. Thank you so much for joining our podcast, Who Needs School Today? Um, really excited about having this conversation with you. And I thought we'd just get started with a little context. What was your educational experience? If you could walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for your interest. I think I've experienced just about every type of standard American educational format that there is. I grew up in a small town just uh, north of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so went to a small town public elementary school and high school. 65 kids all came into kindergarten together on one end of the building, and we marched progressively down a very long building and came out the other side as uh, seniors and uh, graduated uh, from there back in 93, and then went to a small liberal arts public college in uh, Northeast Missouri, Truman State University, and studied physics there, and also studied uh, philosophy and religion and mathematics, and had a great experience as an undergrad. I thought that I might have a vocation uh, to the Jesuits and had done what's called the spiritual exercises while I was an undergrad and decided to, to look in that more deeply. So I actually joined the Society of Jesus and spent seven years as a Jesuit, and they have an extensive formation process that I made it about three-fourths of the way through. Part of that involved uh, me going to St. Louis to study philosophy and theology at St. Louis University. And at the same time, I also got a master's degree in philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology from Washington University in St. Louis. So that's a little bit of, of my formal educational background, at least. Okay. That's uh, great. Okay. And I know that, and then you landed at Brophy somehow. And I, and yeah, at Brophy Prep down in Phoenix, and those of us in, in Jesuit secondary education heard about what you were doing at the Innovation Commons in this freshman class you created. Could you can it can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that kind of nudges at the edge of really incorporating technology and learning experiences into the curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, when I left the uh, Jesuits, I uh, knew I wanted to stick with Jesuit education. That's really where my heart and my passion was at for a wide variety of reasons. I hope we get to explore it during our time together. I w when I got there, I was a science teacher. And so I was teaching primarily physics, a couple other classes in the science curriculum, became the science department chair, then switched over to becoming the dean of students for four years and continued to teach AP physics while I was the dean of students. And then about six years into my time at Brophy, the principal there, Bob Ryan, thought it'd be a good idea to create a new position, an assistant principal level position for technology instruction. The idea would be to look at just innovative ways that we could continue to expand the way that teaching and learning gets done. 
And so we started to explore different school models, not out of the sense that we knew we were going to change our own school model, but just to, just to see what's what's happening, forecast and look ahead about where education might be going. We looked at High Tech High in San Diego was one of the more formative experiences we had in terms of uh, as an administrative team going and looking at a different type of approach, a variety of other schools as well. But what I saw at High Tech High really stuck with me as something that I found pretty inspirational, very thought-provoking. And it inspired a lot of my desire to to start what we call the Innovation Commons. So when I took over this position as Assistant Principal for Technology Instruction, for a while, it was just a straight up programming, looking at how we had a one-to-one program at Brophy for quite a while at that point already. So part of it was just, well, how do we use technology more effective for teaching and learning and in the classroom? And at one point in my time there, about two years in that position, we were offered about a $300,000 grant to use. And the only stipulation was that it had to be used for technology and education and to explore that. Well, we had already had a fully functioning uh, one-to-one program. So it was really hard to think about how we were going to spend $300,000. We essentially had everything we needed in that regard. So that money served as seed money for us to just say, let's, we could do something different here. We could really take a risk, think outside the bounds and, and invest that money in, in something that we're just not sure if it's going to work or if it's going to take off or not. And so that, that was the basis for creating what we call the innovation commons, where it was like a little bit of a mini high-tech high experience, a real focus on what is often called problem-based learning or challenge-based learning. But the foundation of it was to say, look, let's redo this. It was really, it was our library space. We took out our library space, which was a, had about the same square footage of a standard a gymnasium. Uh, took all the books out that hadn't been checked out in years and years because we had a one-to-one program. Mm-hmm. And in place of that, we brought in all kinds of different technology that I w- was the director of the space, but I didn't, I'd never used before. So 3D printers, laser cutters, CNC routers, CNC mill, all kinds of different electronics, just a wide variety of different types of tools that would allow kids to, to create you know, different things. And the foundation of it, where I took some of the inspiration from, was a book I had read called Invent to Learn. Invent to Learn uh, is by a pretty progressive educator named Gary Steger. He'd done a lot of really cool work along these lines down in Australia. And I read the book and was really transformed by the idea, the idea being that give kids, maximize the amount of freedom that you can give kids, give them a wide variety of different tools to create with, and then give them an opportunity to explore those things, some structure, but mostly give them opportunity and freedom. So we we put all that stuff in place. We organized it around what I call the three C's. That's CAD, computer-aided drafting. That's what you need to run the 3D printer and the CNC router and all those other tools. So CAD, coding. So everybody will learn some basic programming and things like that and circuitry, how to wire up the circuits. Three technological areas of focus. It wasn't, it wasn't having kids go through a bunch of online modules to learn those things and lecturing to them about it. Instead, pedagogically, the focus was on creativity, collaboration, and communication. So it'd give them and really let them come up with projects where they had to use these tools, but what they did with the tools was really entirely up to them. And so we'd spend a month working in, you know, the CAD space and 3D printing and using the router. Then we'd spend another, and it's very open-ended, you know, the, what they got to do and how they learned to use that technology. We spent another month with coding, very open-ended again, then spent another month with circuitry. And then at the end, the last quarter of the class was to design, think up a project that you want, that a student might want to do. 
that tied all three of those technologies together and, and work with other students. You had to work with somebody else to accomplish that. So these guys who had never, many of these guys, they were all freshmen. We wanted it to be a, it's a required freshman course. We wanted it to be freshmen so they would get familiar with the innovation commons and they could use that the rest of their time at Brophy and different classes and things like that. These guys had never done, worked with most of those tools or technologies or had any programming experience. And in that first, my very first class, I had guys creating underwater drones that could, we put it in the swimming pool at Brophy and it could float around and see different things. They created flying drones. Uh, I had one guy 3D print a hand, uh, an imitation hand, and then he wired up a, a leather glove, a leather working glove with a bunch of servos and some uh, circuitry. And then whatever he did with his gloved hand, the 3D printed hand would mimic that. And so you just had, it really blew me away as an educator to see all of the things they, these freshmen were able yeah. to do. And it was just, yeah, it started to accomplish exactly what we had hoped that, that it would. So it's, so I've always been curious about how, like, how did that then weave itself through their subsequent years? Did you find that it yeah. was, that it impacted what they were able to do in other classes and did other teachers get on board or what happened with that? Yeah. So I can only paint a partial picture here because I was, uh, there for two years in Innovation Commons, uh, working in that space before I came to Creighton Prep to become the principal over here. So I never got to see four years worth of it in action, but I obviously I stayed connected with it. There are some fantastic stories. For one thing, it was open to all students. Anybody could come down there. And we had one guy that came down there, and I don't know if he's just a prodigy with it or what it happened to be, but he started his own CAD company, and he would just come down there every day. He got a, a great set of skills. And then he decided just on his own volition to see if he could market himself. And he was a junior at the time. And so he took some of the projects that he had been working on, put them on the on Craigslist, actually, and put himself out there as a guy who could do CAD and, and just to see if anybody wanted to do it. He was contacted by a medical company in Scottsdale. And they said, hey, we'd be interested to have you work with us. Here are some paper blueprints. Can you digitize these? If just I, We just want to see if you can do it. If you can do this, then we might look at uh, having you work with us on a contractual basis. So over Christmas break, he took a couple of those. He did it exactly the way they wanted to. And when he turned it in, they came back to him and said, how much, how much <laughs> per hour do yeah. you want us to pay you? And he thought, okay, I'll really highball this, right? Start $50 per hour and, and negotiate down. And that he said $50 per hour. They said, absolutely. And so we started working with them for 50 (laughs) bucks an hour. Yeah. And then they told them when he was done working with them next time, ask for 75. Like that's the going rate. Wow. Um, So we had guy, and he actually, he got so good at it and so involved and got so much work that he started hiring other kids who had gone through the Tomorrow Lab, the Innovation Commons curriculum. And it was fascinating to listen to him go through the hiring process as a business leader like right beside me. And he was asking kids like, what's your skill set? If you don't, if I already know how to do this, why would I hire you to do something that I can already do? And to hear these conversations happening with 16 year olds, it was pretty remarkable. The remarkable thing for me as an educator was, and that's just one example, there's a whole bunch of other things in different technology spaces. He, he outpaced my abilities with CAD within about the first four weeks of his working with it. Like I said, I didn't know how to use any of these tools either. I was always at best maybe just one week ahead of the kids in terms of what I was hoping that they were going to be learning. And about a third of the students that I worked with quickly outpaced my skill set in each one of these arenas. And so a lot of times it was me learning from them 
or me asking them to teach other students. That, as an educator, was one of the more profound experiences I had. Yeah, and that's that's letting go of that fear of having to be the expert in the room. It's that, that transition yeah. from teacher as holder of all information and expert to really managing that process and opening up a world exactly. that these kids could have. So this kid used Brophy as his business. I love it. He had all his employees yeah. there. <laughs> all the equipment. Yeah, he had his little... Yeah, he, he he used our printers to make his own That's uh, awesome. business card and yeah. the whole nine yards. And so, so it was just story after story of guys, you know, that were able to do that. And we had a couple of guys who are in what's called the Loyal Academy program. I that's similar to a program that you guys all have at St. Ignatius, where you get some students who so socially economically disadvantaged backgrounds and they come in as middle schoolers. I had some of these guys start with my class as freshmen. And I know, for example, that some of these guys, even though I didn't get to see them graduate, went on to study engineering and uh, computer sciences and things like that as well. And they credit their experience in the innovation commons as being an important part of that. So you, so it's springboard there, right? You mentioned you were, you were able to launch that at Brophy for two years, and then you take a leadership role, higher leadership role at, at Creighton Prep. As principal, and I'm curious how you've been able to bring that uh, thinking and that innovation to the Creighton Prep community. Yeah, so one of my first projects when I got here was to do the same thing, build another innovation commons. We call it the Tomorrow Labs here at Creighton Prep, but same thing, only better. I, it's Innovation Commons 2.0. So I learned from, like, I teach all my students who I was teaching in an innovation commons. Our big theme was make better mistakes tomorrow. So one of the bases of the whole class was that there were no lectures, there were no tests, there was no traditional quizzes or homework or anything like that. So students were assessed and were graded on the effort they put forward, the way that they collaborated with others, that they stayed engaged in class, and that they demonstrated that they were learning from their mistakes. And we always expected that some of the stuff they would want to try wasn't going to wasn't going to work out for them. I described some of those big projects, but there were many projects that just failed. And that was never an inhibition to them getting a good grade. In fact, I wanted them to overshoot a little bit and just see what they could, could accomplish as opposed to hold back. In that same spirit, we created a similar one here. And it's I'd say the there's a little bit more investment in the formal part of the program here at Creighton Prep. So in addition to having the innovative technologies class, we have a three-year robotics curriculum here. We have a four-year programming curriculum here, architecture, in addition to a three-year, just what we call innovative technologies curriculum as well. So there's probably more extensive programming uh, that we've been able to develop and in some ways more formalized. I talked about how fun it is and exciting it is, it is to have an open arena. And that's a great way for getting kids initially interested and excited. But at some point, once they're invested, they need they do need some structure and some clear pathways to make the most of their time and their energy and their enthusiasm. And so that's where the latest for me in terms of what's happened here is getting more of that structure in place so they can really accelerate through the through the curriculum and learn as much as possible. And are those elective tracks for you guys? Like the- yeah, so we... Uh, here, we require one year of fine, what we call fine arts or design technology. So they have to take one credit of that, but they do have lots of open electives as well. Gotcha. So if, okay. you know, if they want to continue on for years two, three, and four, those are just open electives. Come back to that because that curriculum piece is important. But you mentioned the, the opportunity to do the Innovation Commons 2.0. I'm curious what you learned at the experience at Brophy that informed what you're able to build at, at Creighton. 
Yeah. So I think, yeah, at the risk of repeating myself, I think it was that when I first started at Brophy, it really had to be pretty open-ended and there wasn't a ton of structure with it initially, again, because I was just barely keeping up and the other person that was working down there was just, again, one step ahead. So it was really great to see kids leap out ahead. Everybody reaches kind of their maximum capacity. And so it's just also really important once you've gotten a kid hooked on something, you don't want them then to max out their potential within just a couple months. So it does take bringing in, at some point, you need to bring in real enthusiastic experts in those domains that can really work with students to take them as far as they want to go. And that was something that, at least initially at Brophy, we didn't have in place. Whereas right. now here at Creighton Prep, I'm fortunate to have a guy who worked in the same type of environment but at the University of Notre Dame. So he he's seen all this stuff at the university level and has a really deep expert knowledge of a variety of different technologies. And, and so he's really able to take kids very far without, and this is to me the key important part, it's important to, to have the resources there to be able to move kids ahead, but not to over-engineer it so much that you take away all the freedom and the flexibility, which then takes away the creative self-expression from the students as well. So it is the hardest thing actually about coming up with these spaces and putting them in place and the curriculum and things like that. It's not really the technology. It's not really actually the curriculum and finding resources for students to learn. It's finding the right person who has that kind of Leonardo da Vinci spirit. Yeah, that open uh, mindset. Yeah. yeah, open mindset and also a great attitude with kids. Uh, yeah. Those are pretty rare commodities. And bouncing off that, it's, that's fascinating. Congratulations on, on being able to do that. We've heard about that Thanks. in the Silicon Valley and, and the great work that you're doing with that. Where do you see this going? What's Where do you see is, uh, this, you know, the, in education today and the, and the kind of trends moving forward? What would you like to do at, at, at Creighton moving forward? Yeah, I'm really excited to see engineering schools in particular starting to move more and more in this direction as well. I always feel like secondary ed, working in high schools, it's a tough space educationally because you have to work with what you're getting, right? You have to, whatever the K through eight environment, whatever's happening there, that's going to dictate what your kids' experiences are coming in out of the gate and what they're conditioned and ready for. And then you also were a college prep school, right? That our main objective is to make sure that students are ready to excel in a college setting yeah. and a university setting. You've got parents setting. sending kids to your school to make sure they get into college. That's your value proposition, yeah. right? And that still is. And that still is the greatest gateway to success in the future. So you're, we're in this weird in-between space where we can't get too far ahead of what the universities are doing. You can't just divorce yourself entirely from what students are going to experience after they leave here and go to a college setting. And you have to start with what you've got and what they've experienced in, in school. But I think it's a really exciting space because uh, in the secondary ed space, what you get and what I think the one of the big dilemmas are, and I think it's especially this way for college prep schools like St. Ignatius, like Brophy, like Creighton Prep, you get very intelligent and very committed students Motivated. with a very high work ethic and a very strong desire to succeed. And they have an exterior sense of what success looks like. So when you tell them, you know, what they, they want to know from A to Z exactly what it takes to get 110%. And they will, they will do what it, exactly what it is that you say. And if you don't give them enough guidance or enough instruction about what success looks like, that can be a really debilitating thing for them, at least initially. 
And that's what we would experience a lot in these spaces out of the gate. When you tell them to come up with a creative project that involves using CAD code and circuitry, and that's the only parameters you put on it, there's a, there's a certain level of paralysis that they encounter. And I think the hardest experience all of these students have is working through, you're not telling me what you want. And I, and that's the constant refrain back to them is, yeah, what I want is what you want. You have to figure out what it is that you want to make. And that creative, going through the creative process is actually what they find out is that's the hardest part of, of the whole paradigm. And, but what's important about that is that's what, once you get through the university system, at least that's what people are most looking for. They're looking for creative leaders who know how to work well with others and who know how to communicate effectively. And that's so those are the three C's that you want to try to inspire in them, right? Creativity, collaboration, and communication. And, and our traditional college prep environments are not really necessarily set up for that. They're set up to have kids work individually in some competitive type modes, right? There's not most of our, a lot of time, most of our curriculum doesn't really foster having kids work together in groups very often. Their communication skills are typically limited maybe to writing, very rarely oral communication and presentational type things or, or other modalities that they would use to communicate what it is that they're doing. But I find that the biggest limitation in much of our curriculum is on the creativity piece. They're really asked to get their way through kind of an algorithmic approach to learning. And then when they're released to just follow their own desires and passions and use their own creative energies, they often don't even know what that means. Yeah. And we're, we're part of a tradition, a centuries long, that's of education that's built on prescriptive, rigorous, disciplined form of study that's proven yeah. to be very successful. We had a grad I was talking to from the early 70s and been involved in the National Institutes of Health. And I said, what should we be doing? You know, you're in science, made a career of it, which would be doing at the high school level. And he said, you got to teach them the basics. They need the, the basics of science. But what we do in science is we teach them, you know, they, they do labs of problems we've already solved. They're just trying to get to a solution that's already been figured out. Do that for a couple of years, but then get, get them to tackle problems that haven't been solved yet. Now, most of them aren't going to figure out a solution, but that process of working with it and failing, but be, having to be creative and work together to do it. That really explore that because that's those are the skills that are going to need moving forward. Um, yeah, you know, and it, you're right, and it's a tough. There's a real tough tension there. We are part of a tradition in Jesuit schools of the ratio studiorum, that rigorous education. But it's also a tradition that was born in the Renaissance, and so it's it's got the both and approach to it. And the Jesuits and Jesuit institutions, program, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're highly creative, highly, yeah. highly artistic. That that's a big part of what makes them the effective organizations that they are. One one of the things I, I you know I think a lot about if we look at education as a business and it, it's one of the last traditional businesses it's been around for a long time and it hasn't yet to be disrupted and if we don't think that's happened or happening we're, we're cab drivers and so one of the things in disruption in business is you look at those the the basic assumptions of that business and, and we have some basic assumptions in education right it's a factory model in an agrarian calendar and so if we begin to challenge some of those assumptions. Uh, that could be begin to change the structure and the face of what we do. And one of these other assumptions that we have, at least in, in California, is that our curriculum is hogtied to the requirements to get into a University of California school, the UC requirements. Mm -hmm. And we have very little space, especially when we're, as a Catholic school, have a requirement to teach religion. So yeah. the room we have for elective space is pretty small, especially when it's in the context of the other constraints we have around the calendar and time and all that stuff. 
Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious if you've given that any thought, like what as a leader at, at Crate and Prep, how do you see that? And, and how do you think about challenging those assumptions at all or working around them or creating new structures around that? And just curious if that's a you know, thought you've had at all. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's uh I remember, you know, when we started the Innovation Commons at Brophy, and the reason it was called the Innovation Commons is because when it was the library, it was called the Information Commons. So we just thought, hey, let's play on this and change one element of it. And it was also speaking to what's happening maybe in society at large, moving from the information age to the innovation age, because you've got technologies now that make it so easy to be creative and to create new things in ways that you didn't have when when it was really hard to, to create something, right? And that's part of what's changed about this factory model approach is you can actually innovate and prototype and design a whole bunch of stuff in your own garage that before you could only do in the most elaborate machine shops and laboratories of GE or Ford or places like that. So it really is switching from information to innovation as being one of the primary sources of capital. And I think that's what we have to help teachers and students start to focus on more and more. I do think education is a highly traditional field and profession. And in part, a large part of that is because it's the only profession that you're engaged in, at least as a consumer, from the time you're five, right? Everybody's in a school from the time that they're five. They go all the way through college. And when you're a teacher, you get your master's degree and then you start teaching. And so many of us, you know, have been in schools our whole lives. And it's not the case with an engineer that from the time they were five, they were in a machine shop or a laboratory when they and from five to eighteen, they learned what it meant to be an engineer and, and lived it out day to day in ways that happen in education. So I think sometimes change is really slow to come unless it something really necessitates it. But I think the pandemic is living through this has been one example of something that's forced uh, a lot of us to get more comfortable with this idea of saying, holy cow, we're all gonna have to be innovators here, at least for a little bit and experience this. When everything shut down and we had to go, every single brick and mortar school had to go fully remote. And and some of us, we did it in just a matter of maybe a couple of weeks. That was a massive corporate innovative process that every single educational institution lived through. And we lived through it together, but it was transformational in terms of taking you from one model of doing school to a, to a much different model of doing school. And to the extent that I'm not I'm not going to sit back and say, hey, we all want to you know, do remote learning now from now on or incorporate that or make massive changes to the way that we were doing things. But I do think that one thing that's going to last and hold on for a while is that educators had a very important experience of seeing themselves as innovators and being comfortable and getting being forced to change and then saying, oh, okay, I can manage change and I can learn new things. And I, I have the freedom to do things differently, even if up to this point, I've been doing it the exact same way for the last 20 years. Now, change for change's sake isn't something that you want to go through and you don't want to just chase every single latest fad. But I do think that this is going to have a marked effect on education. At least I hope it will in that it changes people's perspective. One of the things I feel like it's changed here at Creighton Prep and, and probably at a lot of other college prep schools as well is we're, again, we're a very rigorous approach. Discipline is a, a real focus here. The way students conduct themselves and go about their day relative to a lot of other places might be considered pretty highly regulated. And coming back to having everybody in school, but having people do things differently, what we've learned is to be able to trust students a lot more. And we've seen, hey, if we like, let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt and then see what happens. And I think most of us have been very impressed with how students have stepped up to a challenge, 
when a challenge is presented himself, and in fact, have been eager in some ways for a challenge. And I think and hope like it's those kind of philosophical shifts that might change more than any technical changes that might come about. Like we're all going to use that, that we all use a classroom management system to me isn't important as philosophically the shift of trusting students or seeing ourselves as innovators. Those are going to have more profound impact on the culture of learning, I think. Yeah. And that it's, it's the culture, right? If the if you're, you go around looking for how they're screwing up, that right. they're going to behave one way versus you just you trust them. And really what that trust communicates is that they own their educational experience and process. Yeah. They, they're not there to witness it. They're there to participate in it. And, and, I, and that, they take that with them for the rest of their lives. Anything yeah. that, is... You- Go ahead. I was going to say you just keyed on to one of the one of the primary things I look for now is now that I'm more of an academic leader and responsible for evaluations and going into classrooms a lot and uh, helping to facilitate some coaching or you know guiding teachers. One of the things I always look for when I'm going into a classroom, either if it's just a drop in or if it's an evaluation, is to see like who's doing the heavy lifting here, who is who's actually doing the most work at any given mm-hmm. time. And my perspective as an educator has changed a lot, even for myself. Whereas early on in my career, I thought that being a great teacher meant that I was the center of attention and you were going to see me being the center of gravity and doing a lot of the work. And when you went into my classroom, you would see like the person working hard in this and hardest in this room is the teacher. Right. And my perspective on that has changed. And the innovation commons had a big role in that where I want to see the students being the hardest workers in the room. And what I would always tell everybody when I was given a tour of the innovation commons, and I wasn't the one that was the teacher assigned to the space, but the other person who was also working down there happened to be teaching that class. I would challenge them before we went in the space. I said, let me know when you figure out who the teacher in the room is. And it would take them a really long time to, huh. to figure out and find the teacher. Because there was there there were just clusters of kids doing different things, and uh, the teacher as facilitator was very much alive, you know, in a space like that. And that's what's interesting is because we we probably had similar experiences going through school and then get into education. Teachers are the writer, producer, director, and lead actor on their stage. You close that door, bam, you are on, and that's the profession is attracts people like that. And so there's a real mindset change, and obviously it's been dramatic, right? But the knowledge piece you could it, you could find on a phone. You can tell your fingertips. It's really more about that process of developing lifelong learning. And I think you really touched upon it is that a change from information to innovation and creating the garden, if you will, for creativity, because that is going to be one of the premiums in the in the workforce and in life in terms of personal fulfillment and contentment and, and contribution to society is going to come from creativity in the years ahead. A- anything I haven't asked or that you're that you'd like to you know reflect upon or is there some big aggie you have out there, big hairy audacious goal that you'd uh, like to see schools head towards in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I, I certainly have a certain amount of reputation built up as a, a science and technology and innovation type guy based on my experience at Brophy. Now, as a head of school and somebody who's thinking about the larger program, I, I give equal weight as a secondary pillar to talking about education, but also talking about formation. And I think at Jesuit schools in particular, the formation of the young people that come to us is equally as important, if not more important, as a primary goal than their education. We certainly, like I said already, we want and need them to be ready to flourish in a, in a, in a 
university classroom. That is a very important goal. More important for the community, for the country, for them as individuals and as, as people is to, to go through a formation experience. And so I think a lot about how do, how do we want our formation experience in schools to also learn from and be modeled by some of these best practices we have for education. And that means making sure that the formation experiences evoke passion, that they allow for creativity, that they are places where dialogue is encouraged and encounter really takes place. And that, and if they're religious schools too, that means being open to ha- making sure that can happen with a religious dimension of their reality as well. So that everything's not so programmatic and so formulaic and so prescribed that it takes the creativity and the passion away from them. Because then once I think a lot about once they leave our structures where they're asked to engage in these things, and I do think that when they're here, they find them fulfilling, but we need to know that they're, they're, they're so baked into who they are as, as humans that when they leave, they will continue to seek it out and know that it's valuable. And that not just that they'll seek it out for themselves, but they'll also find ways to make sure that they're contributing to the life of the church and to the good of the community that they're a part of. And that they're not just consumers of those of those things, or even worse yet, that they're non-participants completely because they've lost a sense of the value of it. And that's so important, right? To be grounded in our, to provide experiences so that they're really grounded in our, our faith. We, we just had an alumni function the other night, virtually, and this guy, Admiral John Richardson, used to run the Navy, was our guest speaker. And he uh-huh. talked about how his faith really informed his service, how important his Catholic values are to the, the perspective he had in serving our country and that ethical foundation having to make some pretty difficult decisions that have global impact and how important that that faith and moral piece is to what we do. Whole nother podcast, right? Because that's such yeah, a, yeah. I think, an increasing challenge for us. I was just reading a, a blog from one of the Jesuit priests at a parish in San Francisco. It's associated with USF called St. Ignatius Parish. And he yeah. stated in 1990, 80% of Catholics in the United States would attend church on a regular basis. By 2010, it's down to 20%. Yeah. And coming out of the pandemic, I is that what's that going to look like? And then as Catholic Jesuit schools, how do we provide meaningful spiritual sacramental experiences for our kids that they'll that they'll take with them? It's like that's a whole new um, ball game for us, right? Yeah, and I, but I think that some of these same things that we were just talking about, like those, have to translate in other arenas. If, if education is going to be, if you're going to treat education as if young people are consumers of knowledge or consumers of the teacher's wisdom, and they're just passive in that role, they're going to do it so far as they see that it evokes, you know, some level of value for them, gets them the diploma and the degree that they think that they want or need. And the same thing, will they make the most of it? Will it really have a life-changing and transformational experience on them? Probably not if they're just passive consumers. And I think religion is the same way. If we treat people as though they're just passive consumers of religion, we don't give them a space to be creative and passionate and really own it as individuals, then they're only going to take it and use it so far as they you know, it serves some immediate need for them. And they're likely to leave it behind once it doesn't, because the, the interior motivation, which we would see as passion, would be lacking. Yeah. Are you on the walk in the trail or are you just on the ride? <laughs> That's the, yeah. hey, last bit. 
And this has been great, Jim. I really appreciate this time. It's been a fascinating conversation and just really applaud the work that you're doing and have done. Any suggestions? You mentioned a book earlier. I'd like you to mention that one again, really transformed kind of your perspective on things around, uh-huh. I think, the student experience. If you can mention that, or if there are any other recommendations you might have for our listeners that they may want to watch or read, I'd love to hear what you might suggest. Yeah. The book that had uh, the transformational experience on me and probably, what are we looking at now? About 10 years ago, Invent to Learn. And that's by Gary Steger. And uh, I think it's Sylvia uh, Martinez. And uh, it's a great book. There's a lot of information in there. It's very, there's a lot of great philosophical stuff, but there's a lot of great practical stuff too. And, and they were inspired by some of the stuff that was happening at MIT's Maker Lab. And they get down into the, they do some high level stuff, but they also do a great job of getting down into the weeds and being very practical. And we actually had uh, Gary Steger come out to Brophy, serve as an immediate advisor to us when we were first getting this thing off the ground. And I remember at one point we told us one of the things that's missing in your list of things that I'm seeing here that I, I don't see in this space is sewing machines. And I remember being really shocked, like, you want us to get sewing machines in the, in it? like, what? we got 3D <laughs> printers and laser cutters. Like, why do you want sewing machines? They said, remember, it's about giving kids a chance to be creative and self-exhibit self-expression and clothing and that things like that are really yeah. important to them. And sure enough, we That's got three brilliant. sewing machines and they got used all the time. <laughs> That's so awesome. that was a very important book on a couple different levels. And then anything you can get into with the maker movement, I think it's lost a little steam during the pandemic. I know it's big out. One of the major centers for it is out in California. Getting students, it's a great celebration of this whole mentality. And so anybody who's working with young people to get them involved in the maker movement and maker fairs, those experiences can be really transformational for young people. They have a place to show off their things, to be in a community with other people who are also excited about and inspired by those things. And so having maker clubs, the maker movement, I think there's a movie on the maker movement as well that that I'd recommend as well, more a documentary. Yeah, cool. Very good. I live about uh, 500 yards from the fairgrounds where they ha- uh, have a maker. Well, I think, I don't know if it's the original, okay. but they have a maker fair out in San Mateo where I live in California yeah. and it's, they bring in droves. Obviously they weren't, haven't been able to do it the past couple of years. Hey, I promise you a, a good dinner out and we'll put you and your wife <laughs> up out in San Francisco. We'd love to get you out at, at San Ignatius to, to share the work that you've done with our, our administration and our faculty. Again, just really applaud you and encourage you to keep going. And, uh, and thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Next Maker Fair, if you're only 500 yards away, then I will uh, go out there to the fair and I'll, I'll stop by. <laughs> Come on, I got a place for you to stay. That's awesome. awesome. Thank you, Jim. And that's it for this episode of Who Needs School? I'd love to hear from you, so please reach out to me at joevollert at gmail.com. That's J-O-E-V as in Victor, O-L-L-E-R-T at gmail.com. Love to hear any questions or thoughts you might have, and maybe you want to be a guest. Thank you.